This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing why it is impossible for the Tories to demonise Keir Starmer, talking about the social media push to get young women to freeze their eggs, and going through the best, or perhaps the worst, bits in Prince Harry's tell-all memoir, Spare. First up, who's afraid of Keir Starmer? In his cover piece for the magazine this week, The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, says that without a demon Labour leader to point to, the Tories stand little chance at the next election. He joins me now alongside journalist Paul Mason. Fraser, to start with, you argue in your piece that the Conservatives are going to struggle to demonise Keir Starmer at the next election. Why? Because I think the Conservatives have grown lazy on negative campaigning. Almost every single election, the main message is, look at the other guys, aren't they crazy? Now, in Jeremy Corbyn's case, I think they were right. I think the fear of Corbyn was the main driver of Tory votes. That wasn't a fear exaggerated by the Tories. It didn't need to be. You were having Labour MPs like Ian Austin say that even he was going to vote Tory because he thought Jeremy Corbyn was such a threat to the party. Now, my point being that this wasn't a Tory spin operation. But in the um, 2015 election, you had Ed Miliband, and there was a, the Tories were saying the coalition of chaos, if Miliband were to get in, this guy is a kind of red-ed socialist. And so it wasn't really about what conservatism can do, what conservatives can do. It was positioning themselves as the party that will keep out the other guys. And I think this is it's a very easy campaign to do, to attack and demonise your enemy. But it's harder if that enemy is Keir Starmer. Now, I am not a great fan of Keir Starmer, but I struggle to think of a way that anybody could betray him as a real and present threat to the United Kingdom, etc., etc. You could very easily see Jeremy Corbyn in that way. You could actually push put Miliband in that way. But this sort of um, rather boring lawyer, I mean, you can say that he's dull. You can say he's said nothing interesting in three years. You can say that he's like a, a square a square man, a kind of um, automaton, a non-playable character. You can say all of these things, but you can't say that Britain would be in terrible hands under this kind of fanatic. And I think the Conservatives are in trouble here because they've run out of other things to say. When you stop talking about your opposite party, you need to start talking about yourself. So why should your average voter wish there to be a fifth Conservative term? I would struggle to answer that right now as somebody who has tended to vote Conservative. And I think the Conservatives as a party need to worry, if, because if a negative campaigning won't work, they've only got positive campaigning and they haven't got much time to come up with some positive messages. Paul, what do you make of that argument? Do you think that the current popularity of, of Labour in the polls is because of a, a kind of a reaction against the Tories and a, and a hatred or dislike of the Tories in the electorate? Or do you think Labour's lead is down to Keir Starmer's skill and leadership? Well, what's, for me, driving the, the headline poll lead of Labour is the story of lack of competence, lack of vision and lack of trustworthiness. And this could be remedied by Rishi Sunak in the sense that 
you could see is a little bit of a clean skin from the worst of what was happening last year in the Conservative Party. I'm sure Labour will work overtime trying to point out, and indeed at PMQs today, were that you were part of all this. But the Labour folklore is that really we're probably eight or nine points ahead. That the core of, of ahead that we are is probably about half of what the headlines say. Um, Can you say a bit more about that? I mean, because right now, Labour is being pretty consistently 20 points ahead. Yeah. So what is the idea that 10 of us is just anti-Tory froth that might blow away? And that's the eight or nine points is what you might call residual Labour? No, I'd take the eight or nine points because, again, anecdotally and intuitively, I believe those eight or nine points, remember, ahead, you know, mm, of the, course. The, the catch up, catching up to where you were, were, were winning back sort of disgruntled of Longbridge, you know, people who slammed the door in my face in 2019 saying Jeremy was a threat to national security. We seem to have won those, as you say, by virtue of Kia being a trustworthy uh, knight of the realm, etc., as you point out in the article. But the one thing I would credit Starmer with, and um, John Healy and David Lammy, is the rock-solid nature of the way they've cemented the position on NATO, on Ukraine and on a pro-Western foreign policy. Mm. That always was Labour's policy. And to be able to get back to it mm. as quickly and solidly as they have is very... And it, put, it puts Labour... You know, I, as you know, have been taking part in some of the selection battles. And you look at battles for places like Colchester, the other Plymouth seat, the, the one currently held by Johnny Mercer. These are suddenly serious battles because... Labour now thinks it can win forces, towns and cities. Mm. Um, so I think that it's, it's a mixture of things. But to come back to your point, my own personal opinion is come the start of the, the four-week campaign, as it's now called, in, under electoral law, we'll probably be down to 12, and then it's a fight. Fraser, Paul mentioned there the NHS and how Labour are more trusted on the NHS than the Tories. And you write quite a bit in your piece about Wes Streeting, the shadow health secretary. Uh, do you think it's quite remarkable that, that he's talking about the need of reform for the NHS in a way that quite a few Tories now wouldn't dare to put it in those exact words? That's, that's quite bold, don't you think? I certainly think that Wes Streeting is a formidable character. I think he is underestimated by Conservatives. I mean, he's relatively young, he's 39, but he has been politically quite consistent since he was elected in, in 2015. Now, the language he's using is very different language for a Labour politician. It gets him into trouble. It gets him into trouble with the British Medical Association. The unions don't like it. He will stand there and say the NHS is not good enough and patients know it. He will accuse GPs of living in a different planet when they vote to restrict their opening hours. He takes an almost confrontational approach to the NHS system. And now this is very different to what the Conservatives were doing in opposition. They were waving pom-poms for the NHS. Matt Hancock, as Health Secretary, would go to work with the NHS badge in their lapel. So they would position themselves as the, the party championing the NHS. West Streeting is positioning himself as the man who's going to reform the NHS and align himself with the patients rather than the producers. Even to draw this distinction takes us back to Blairite language, which the party hasn't used for quite some time. So I think in, in West Streeting, he, by the way, he is somebody who describes Tony Blair as one of his heroes. Now, you haven't got Shannon Front Benjamin saying that for a while. He also doesn't like the word Blairite because he thinks it's dated. Mm. But I certainly think that when you look at a lot of Labour's policies, you can now see the party being... I sometimes think the spectrum of left to right isn't always useful, but certainly more right-wing, right? Or rather, um, then, I mean, people would talk about Blair as the Labour right, Milburn to the Labour right, even John Reid to the Labour right, when they were talking about 
the choice agenda, about letting the, the poor have the same choice that the rich did. John Ashworth, as well, gave a speech to the Centre for Social Justice. Mm. Now, that's Ian Duncan Smith's think tank, is one that I'm involved in as well. And I was just amazed listening to him say words that I remember IDS himself using against Gordon Brown, saying, look at all these five million people on benefits, that's not just a waste of money, it's a waste of human potential. This is exactly the language of conservative reformers aimed at Labour, but now the rules are reversed. Now it's the Tories who are keeping five million on benefits and don't want to talk about it, and we see Labour posing as the party of reform. Now, do I think West Treating is sincere and John Athrush is sincere? I do. That's not to say I think they've got these solutions, but I think they've taken quite a brave position and they mean it. Paul, what's your view on this big shift? You wrote a very good piece for The Spectator a few years ago, giving the left-wing case for Keir Starmer. Are you worried that perhaps Keir Starmer's government is now becoming more Blairite than it is left-wing? I'm really not, because even the Blairites one speaks to, and they are still around, recognise that whatever comes out will be a synthesis. I believe that Starmerism is, in fact, a synthesis of... Remember, Keir was a loyal member of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, Mm. so was John Healy, so were other key people inside this this shadow cabinet, uh, obviously uh, Emily Thornberry. It, it's, start, let's start with the NHS. Remember, at one point, Blair was mulling the whole social insurance issue. There were a group of senior uh, consultants who were saying to Blair, from within the system, social insurance is the only way we're going to make this thing work. Thankfully, that was put to one side. The last thing that the Gordon Brown's administration did was polyclinics. That is the idea of abolishing the GP. Uh, You never see the same person twice. Where you go to is a little primary care factory. There are some antecedents in the Blair Brown years of Labour actually saying, we, the progenitors of this system, know that it needs serious reform to make itself work in the 21st century. I mean, it's quite funny seeing the government pilloried in the mirror for, for suggesting NHS workers should, should produce more productivity. But in fact, all Labour thinking, all social democratic thinking in the world about healthcare relies on technologization, digitization, and productivity. So I, I'm slightly gratified. I mean, I wouldn't go down some of the routes that where streeting's gone. I am on the left of the party. I, I'd be very careful about ending the GP system until you've got a workable alternative trialled out in some very difficult locations, not Islington, but, say, West Wales. So I'd be careful about some of this. But the true balance of a social democratic party is always to balance the producer and the consumer. That's the art art of it. And I think that what surprises me as well, and this is possibly testimony to the the slight uselessness of, of the Conservatives at the moment, is that they haven't laid a finger on Labour or a, or a glove on Labour over mm. the strikes. Mm. I mean, we support the strikes. I, you know, as a putative Labour candidate, if I ever get selected, have said very clearly, I will go on picket lines, I support strike action, the right to strike against this law. But yeah, probably at the edges of, of sort of the right of the Labour Party, there's a lot of discomfort about that. But Okay, Keir Starmer and Lisa and Andy, they've both been saying that the nurses, what they want isn't affordable. So it strikes me as if they, they've taken a more nuanced, almost neutral position, thinking if it strikes up between the workers and the government. I mean, you're right, the Tories haven't really gone the, uh, on the attack on Labour over the strikes, but it strikes me as if the, the Starmer's Labour Party is being is certainly not being as supportive as the Corbyn Labour Party. Would oh, have been. C- certainly. It, but let's remember, in the NHS, for example... 
the moral leadership has, has been of the nurses' strike has been with the RCM, which is not affiliated to Labour. It hasn't really been seen as a, as a trade union, more of a professional organisation. When you talk to, to the leaders of Labour-affiliated trade unions, what they have, what the RCM hasn't got, is that they have tens of local agreements that they've made in the last 18 months that have achieved 8 to 10% pay rises, mainly the private sector, but often private sector, inverted commas, in Britain means, say, the, the outsourced council waste collection. Those union leaders of Unite, GMB, uh, CWU, Community, they're winning 8 to 10% pay rises. And so 8 to 10% is in the minds of most mm. Labour people what is about right. For, for Labour to assume this sort of corporatist, uh, we stand above bosses and workers and we stand for the general interest it's quite a natural thing it's a no-brainer that that's what you'd be doing in government if you're in government you wouldn't be be standing unilaterally on the side of the workforce you'd be trying to negotiate a deal and here's the other thing it's a bit nerdy but i'm sure spectators listeners will be interested in it the way union leaders who win deals are winning them and they they love this is to consolidate irregular payments into the wage consolidate bonuses, hours, unusual things that stick out here and there. What you do is you bring it all in, you lock it in. And they're really happy and their members are really happy with that. So the real picture of the union battles of this last six months has been of quite steady progress for the unions. And it doesn't surprise me that Labour's been able to ride it out. So Labour seems like it's in a very strong position at the moment, looking ahead to next year's general election. But what, what would you say is the party's weakness still? If it has one, maybe it, maybe it doesn't now. I think the, the weakness that's felt inside the party's senior ranks is how do you prepare for government? The civil service, I think I would argue, was quite politicised under Boris Johnson. It, certain appointments got made. You think the whole, the whole national security advisor... The, we don't have any of that. I mean, you know, John Healy goes around and famously says, you know, there are 3,000 servants in the MOD. I have one special advisor and a press officer. And how is he supposed to prepare for government? That's what the weakness that, that I think a, a lot of us inside Labour know that we have. The other weakness is that if Scotland remains, you know, if the SNP remain on a roll, then that whole coalition of chaos argument that you mentioned from 2015 mm. is, a, is a vulnerability. And it's one that Keir Starmer has... has has nixed by basically saying, well, we won't do any deals with the SNP. Mm. But it does leave you with a constitutional crisis to deal with, especially if you've got a constitutional offer. Labour's put a lot of work into this Gordon Brown Commission. It's serious about devolution. It's serious about new constitutional arrangements. And if in the middle of all that you've got an SNP sitting there on the end with some power, with some kudos saying we want X, I, th I think that remains a vulnerability. And events dear boy that's the other thing it, all the events have have not blown up Labour's momentum Covid didn't Ukraine didn't it played in a way to Kia's strengths there are other events that one could imagine not we end up with a general strike coordinated uh, series of strike action which I would be out there supporting you, that might be hard to sell to the um to the general public yes and Fraser just finally the same question to you actually what, what do you think Labour's weakness lies now I mean do you mention your piece that even though the Labour are much more sound perhaps now on economic matters than they were a few years ago, there still are a few uh, wacky 
policies, as, as you call them? Well, yeah, there's all sorts of strange labour policies. But to be honest, the biggest one, if you are to, to take away streeting, I've, I've said how he's been quite brave in the context of labour debate. But if you were to put his policies through a sieve and find out what remains, I'm not sure you've got anything that comes close to fixing the NHS. I mean, for example, saying you can just refer yourself to hospital and not go through a GP, that, I'm afraid to say, is for the birds. If you talk to GPs, they'll tell you that even their own referrals get rejected quite often by, by hospitals. These things, if they don't, they don't really work. And the same in Rachel Reeves' Where's Her Growth Policy, for example. So when it comes down to a general election, and if Rishi Sunak manages to shall we say, detoxify the Tory party. Paul refers to him as a clean skin, you know, somebody who is not associated with a leadership debacle. If he manages to come up with a plausible agenda, which I still think he can do, I think the Conservatives can win in the battle of ideas. But to do that, they need to fight in the battle of ideas. And they haven't been doing that, in my view, for quite some time. Well, Fraser and Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next, The Spectator's newsletter editor, Hannah Tomes, writes in this week's magazine about the social media campaign that is targeting young women, such as herself, to freeze and then share their eggs. She joins me now alongside journalist Sophia Money-Coots, host of the Freezing Time podcast. Hannah, could you start by telling us a little bit about the freeze and share service that is being advertised? Well, I've had it from quite a few different donation places, but I think the one that I talk about in the piece is the London Egg Bank. And they offer a thing called freeze and share where basically they say if you come and donate half your eggs from a from a like collection session, you can freeze the other half for free. That so then you might be able to like store them have and have a child later in life. Which I think is quite an it's a nice on the surface it's a really nice thing to offer because this, it's really expensive to freeze your eggs, so it's a nice thing for people to be able to do who might not otherwise be able to afford it. But then I think the fact that they're just scattergun approach to sending it to everybody people who've never even clicked an egg donation thing people who aren't interested possibly in children and then saying it saying to them you know here's this very expensive thing that you can have much cheaper or possibly for free like in return for quite a lot of your eggs which well half of the ones connect, collected which can be i think i think about six ten something like that i think they try and get 20 in a session so it's like a fair amount i mean i guess you'll know more about this if you've mm. been through it but yeah yeah, it's like it's quite a big undertaking, I think, for something that on the surface, when they advertise it, seems very. They advertise it in quite a breezy way, I think. Hmm. And Sophia, mm. uh, I suppose we should start by making it explicit to our listeners that, that you, despite having frozen your eggs, you have not taken part in the freeze and share scheme. No. But I do want to start by asking you about your experience of mm-hmm. freezing your eggs. And if you, if you don't mind the very intrusive question, uh, what were your motivations for? For doing so, I don't mind at all. Any um, questions? Welcome. I had just turned thirty-five and decided that it was the moment to do it. I'd broken up with an ex um, about a year before, and I thought about it for about a year. It took that long for me to get my head around it because I think signing up for egg freezing—it was like admitting to myself that I wasn't sort of where I thought I might be in life. I wasn't with anyone, and I should probably start to think about potentially freezing if I wanted to have children down the line the average age I think the average British woman is actually I think 37 when she has it done but I just I had a friend who'd had it done and I'd taken her into hospital so I'd seen it happen and it it was quite straightforward for her so I decided okay I'm lucky enough I could afford it I'm 35 
why not just do it and then and then it's done and I was very lucky because I only had to do one round which is quite well it's it's very lucky because lots of women have to do many more to get the 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 magic number as Hannah said of 20 eggs which they recommend so yeah it was really that I was 35 single and I just thought well I can do it so so why not really Mm. and what do you make of the suggestion in in Hannah's piece that this procedure uh, is now being I suppose co-opted a little by those who are hoping to, to turn a profit. Yeah, the freeze and share thing, I've always had quite big ethical question marks over. I think women who come to egg freezing or who are thinking about egg freezing are naturally very vulnerable anyway, because as I said, you are admitting to yourself that you are potentially at a stage in life that you thought you might not be and you have to do this expensive thing, quite invasive medical procedure that, you know, you see all around me, I could see my friends having babies and I thought, God, you guys are getting them for free. <laughs> so unfair, you found someone and you're making it all happen naturally. And I haven't. And therefore, I'm doing this as a sort of insurance policy. Although whenever you talk about egg freezing, you have to be careful not to call it an insurance policy because there's no actual guarantee of a baby down the line. But yeah, I think, I think taking advantage of women when they're in a vulnerable position and potentially, as Hannah explains in her very brilliant piece, offering them money off or even saying you can have it for free as long as you give us half your eggs you're signing off your genetic material to people that you won't necessarily meet and therefore there will be children of yours out in the world that you may meet if they get to 18 and they want to meet you but you may not and I just think that is difficult I'm not totally sure I approve it I get that it helps some women who may not be able to afford to do egg freezing do it themselves but I still think ethically it's a bit dodgy. So Hannah let's let's get on to some of the ethics of this I mean what are the the downsides uh, of having your eggs frozen which you, you feel should be made more explicit in some of these adverts perhaps? Mm-hmm. Well I'm not I don't even really think I'd call them like downsides I think it's more because for some people you know I think some people are perfectly happy to know that they're going to have like a biological child that's not necessarily it's not going to be their actual child but um someone with their DNA I think a lot of people who go into it and they do know all the risks and they do know all of that and they think yeah that's still something I'd love to do great but I think the problem with some of the advertising that I've seen is that it doesn't seem to make it very explicit and like all of the adverts are very much like women empowerment some of them even literally have the hashtag women empowerment or like inspirational women or things like that and you think like I don't think reducing something like that to a soundbite is very helpful when there are so many ethical it's an ethical minefield I think and you don't want to kind of encourage yeah, encourage them into doing something that maybe they haven't sat down and thought about as much as someone who went into it, you know, not off the back of an advert or not because they're, they need to do it through that route, if you see what I mean. But don't you think it could be argued that for women who are perhaps considering it or, you know, it might be at the back of their mind that actually advertisements such as this could be quite a helpful reminder for them? That, that there is such an option available to them. Yeah, I think that would be great if they were targeting it at women who had expressed an interest in egg freezing. But I think it's the fact that they're just targeting, blanket targeting, younger women who also like, possibly might not have as much money as slightly older women or might feel they've lost out time like due to pandemic. I think stuff like that when lots of people weren't meeting anybody and were stuck inside. And also with the cost of living crisis, I think the fact that people just can't afford to do stuff like that anymore. So... I think if they were targeting it more specifically, I would have much less of a, an issue with it. Mm. And Sophia, you, you said earlier on this podcast that you 
you underwent this procedure when you were in your mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that you would potentially have have done it when you when you were younger, or was it something which you needed? time to kind of mentally prepare for. So I suppose what I'm hearing, if you correct me if I'm wrong here, Hannah, but what I think I'm hearing from you is that you're sort of worried about women at particular stages of their life, maybe getting targeted by this stuff, maybe yeah. very young and more. I think maybe who haven't like really sat down and thought at the end of it, there could well be a child that yeah. is your child biologically mm. that you are not going to know unless they decide that they want to meet, you know, when they get to 18. And I also think, like I mentioned in the piece, they're like, I don't know my dad and never have done. And I think, I don't mind because, you know, my family are great, but you, you do always wonder, like, there's a bit of you that does always wonder, like, bits about family that you haven't met or genetic things that you, I don't know, that you have that you wonder where they came from. I think it has a bigger impact on the child, which is never really talked about. Um, and Sophia, then what, what are your thoughts on this empowerment message that, that Hannah speaks about in the piece and, and, and just now on the podcast, the sort of kind of hashtag inspirational uh, side of it. Is that a, do you think that's a useful way of framing this kind of a decision or do you think actually it's a little bit uh, counterproductive? Misleading. Well, not necessarily misleading. Yeah, I think the, the language that has grown up or that is used by fertility clinics, especially since the start of pandemic, you know, egg freezing rates supposedly have rocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm now 37. A lot of women or my friends have panicked that they have sort of lost, quote unquote, two years mm. or a few years of their, you know, best fertility years and therefore egg freezing has shot up and I do think there are very unscrupulous clinics you know I, I not to give myself a plug but I recorded a podcast about my egg freezing process and I still get messages on Instagram now from women talking about it who've listened to it and sometimes they're asking questions you know how do I pick the best clinic how did you pick your clinic how do you know it's a good one because I think in the last few years unfortunately lots of more dubious places have have st- have opened trading on women's fears and are pushing their advertising as Hannah explains in her piece on social media in a slightly dubious way presenting it as this great empowering thing and of course it can you know it can be empowering I've interviewed a woman before who did donate her eggs and she was very very matter of fact about it and um and she was brilliant and she didn't seem to have any qualms at all she really felt very strongly that this is what she wanted to do particularly because there's a shortage of eggs in ethnic minority communities Mm. and she was Chinese born so she wanted to help that but I still think calling it empowering will not be the case for everyone they will be again preying on the vulnerabilities of certain women I think the Mm. woman that I interviewed Elaine Chong she's called she's written about it before with her name so it's fine she talked about I mean we're way more regulated in the UK at least than they are in America she talked about the fact that in America women it's not uncommon for women to be selling their eggs for up to well when she was talking about it $3,000 an egg in the UK it is much more regulated you get paid £750 for it all plus expenses so you don't get those sort of college students desperately trying to pay their tutorial their college fees by flogging you know genetic material so although I think it it can be dodgy and there are dodgy clinics here it is at least more regulated than it seems to be in the states thank you Hannah and Sophia finally this week of course saw Prince Harry's bombshell memoir Spare hit the shelves Philip Henscher writes a scathing review for the magazine and he joins me now alongside Cara Kennedy staff writer at the Spectator's American edition Spectator World Philip, can you start by telling us where you stood on Harry and Meghan before you read the book and whether your opinion had changed by the time you finished? I think it's a slightly it's a slightly difficult question to to answer because one's ears are so flooded with the voice of uh, of Sussex and uh, and the Duchess of Sussex. 
I did have some views about it. I must say that um, I was not particularly impressed with the shifting nature of truth as uh, as it was uh, emerging in their, their interviews and how claims were being made out of nowhere and when they were disproved, they disappeared or the fact that they were being made was being blamed on somebody else. However, I do try to come to books without a uh, prejudice against their authors or their uh, purported authors. And um, and also, this uh, this book, of course, was written by somebody else, you know, Mr. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Meringer. So I wanted to uh, have a view on on what he'd made of, uh, of Sussex's uh, witterings. Well, his, he, uh, it could be argued, has done a sterling job in that, I mean, this is the only book that anyone's talking about this week, whether... Harry will himself be be happy with this sort of nature of the conversation that everyone's having about it is another question, but he certainly made it a, a huge talking point. Well, frankly, one of my first year undergraduate creative writing students could have written this book, and still <laughs> it would have sold four hundred thousand copies on the the first day. It's quite impressive that they've uh, they haven't gone down the route of including photographs in it. I was very struck by that. It is one of those things like Roman lettering um, on a cover that screams class and seriousness and elevation. And if only we could do without photographs of, uh, of the Duke of Sussex uh, jumping out of a tr- tank in his scanties, then um, we, will, we will be in possession of a literary work where people are quoting Faulkner. Faulkner from brainyquotes.com. Brainyquotes.com. Yeah. <laughs> Naturally, I dashed off to brainyquotes.com to find if I were quoted in it, but I'm not. Oh, I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> and Kara, so you have, you've also read the book, and I suppose the same question, did it, did it change your opinion of Prince Harry at all? I think my opinion of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex before this was one of frustration, because before the book, obviously, we had... The Netflix documentary, I mean, they've been inescapable for the last six months of last year. And they have a great skill of not stopping talking, but not saying very much (laughs) at all. So at least now in this book, we do have some answers to the questions that we have been asking for the past six months. I guess since the Oprah interview, full stop, they constantly kind of have these accusations of mystical figures we never really hear any culmination or conclusion of of what's going on but some of it is answered in this book so yeah I think I think the book has has done something good in the fact that it has answered some questions and it and it has showed us why Harry has been so frustrated in his own words for the past two years do you think that the Netflix producers might be a little bit miffed at this point because they paid a lot of money for this for this series and it seems like some of the, the, the kind of juiciest bits have been saved for the book rather than the extremely dull documentary, don't you think? No, definitely. I mean, the, the six hours of, of Netflix told us absolutely nothing. It just rehashed the same groans that the Sussexes have been saying for two years. I'd be absolutely fuming if I were Netflix. Though Philip, you you say in your review that you, you actually don't think that the, that the the publishers have got a particularly good deal out the book as well. Is it, well, do you think? I mean, come on, these huge revelations. You know, a soldier killed some Taliban. <laughs> you know, a a seventeen year old public schoolboy took cocaine at a party. <laughs> Seriously, we're paying money to find this out. Is there 
I mean, I, I, I really, I really struggled to find anything shocking or even interesting in these revelations. If he weren't the great, 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 great grandson of the first Empress of India, would we? really be crossing the road to listen to this. And I think actually this is one of the problems with royalty, as I as I did say in my review, sorry, it's very bad manners to quote yourself, but I do think it's terribly difficult for royalty to write a book because they are surrounded from birth by people who are telling them that whatever they say is extraordinarily fascinating. Now, most of us don't have that. Most of us are told, oh, do shut up, or oh, I've heard that story before, or whatever. Royalty, not. And if you have a native strength of character, as I would say the Prince of Wales has, or the King has, and certainly his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, had, then you avoid that. You you brush off the flatterers and the sycophants and the opportunists. Sussex hasn't done that. He is absolutely surrounded by sycophants who will say, oh, do tell us the story about how, how the end of your penis froze off. Or, um, or yes, 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 we'd love to hear. hear. Or you, you must write a book. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you only got a grade D in geography. You know, you, of course you can write a book. And here's a little man called J.R. Murringer. <laughs> now, you know, he doesn't have the strength of character to rise above that, yes. I think. And I think it's, it's going to be a problem. Cara, you wrote a piece for The Spectator World in which you say that both Harry and Meghan may be suffering from what you term Sussex syndrome. Could you describe to our listeners just what is Sussex syndrome? Well, it's the ability of having one opinion one week and then a different opinion the next. I think the most interesting thing about what's come out from the book is about how in the Oprah interview, Meghan talked about how there were concerns about Archie's skin colour within the royal family. And then he comes out, I mean, everybody's jaw just dropped. He came out and said, oh no, but that isn't racist. I mean, his biggest issue for the last two years has supposedly been that the royal family has allowed a press narrative to go out about his wife and about how the royal family did nothing to stop it. I mean, he sat there and watched everybody brand the royal family racist including the Queen, everybody in the whole institution for the last two years of the Queen's life and for the last few months of Prince Philip's life. And that was absolutely devastating for the entire family. But he allowed that narrative to be pushed and he allowed people with big platforms like Oprah Winfrey to push this narrative. And I think that is Sussex syndrome. So there's just such double standards between the Sussexes, what they deem is right and what they actually do. It's perfect nonsense as well to say that nobody in that conversation thought that he was uh, that they were being accused of racism. And Oprah Winfrey dropped her drawer and said, "Are you serious?" Now, if, you, if somebody said said that somebody was uh, I forget the 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 term um, uh, needed education or needed learning. What what is the term? I've forgotten. Oh, it's not racism. It, um, it's um, unconscious bias. Unconscious bias. Now, if somebody said, "Oh, you have unconscious bias." You know, I have a very dear friend who has uh, an undoubtedly unconscious bias to get bias against Wickhamists. Now, you know, we <laughs> don't say, "Are you serious? Are you serious?" That's a point. You know, we say that for serious things. Now, I think the whole thing about the press being blamed for taking stuff and running it surfaced again today. Sussex said that he killed twenty five. Taliban. This was reported, in my view, in quite a neutral way by the press. 
pointing out with the aid of a lot of support from the army that this is something that they they really do not do say how many people they've killed he's blamed today on press exaggeration or spin now how is it spin to dangerous say spin. dangerous no no less spin. dangerous spin. dangerous spin as opposed to the person who said yeah i killed <laughs> no it's, it's absolute nonsense it not really is nonsense yes. well that's just one well, of the contradictions i mean he wants privacy he does four interviews in a week he hates the institution but he refuses to give up his titles i mean when he was asked if he would give up his titles he said what difference would that make well a hell of a lot to the british people and and to the institution that you haven't stopped talking badly about for the past two years. And also he constantly talks about how he's moving on and he's happy, but it seems like he's dangerously fixated on the past. And whatever whatever therapist that he is obviously taking around with him isn't doing him very well, I don't think. The uh, the narrative that uh, uh, he's now extraordinarily happy is, has got nothing to do with his state of mind necessarily and everything to do with his chosen literary genre, which is the misery memoir. You're born into an awful family. They take you outside at the age of three and they sell you to a passerby for a packet of cigarettes. They uh, beat you up and put you in cellar in rats. Not with not in this case, of course, or in you know in Sussex's case, the misery. You're placed in a basement flat in Kensington Palace where a parked car blocks out some of your light. I mean, the suffering. But then the book demands that you move on and you find redemption. Now, in the kind of uh, rat and cellar type, is often that they discover a library and they learn to read and write. Not in Sussex's case, he meets... He hasn't learned to read and write. He, yeah, he, uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, well, no, let us not go there. But he meets, a, he meets an actress who has freckles and he tells her he's, she's got beautiful freckles and they're ever so happy together. It's all to do with the literary demands of the genre. And well, I suppose it doesn't matter what any of us here may say about it, because I'm going to I'm going to quote what the prince says in the book regarding what happened, where he says there's just as much truth in what I remember and how I remember it as there is in so-called objective facts. So there you go. There's the top oh, well, trump. There you go. You, there can't, you go. You can't argue against that. Yeah, although it, is, it must be said that some of the things that were remembered as objective facts have now rather usefully disappeared from the account in the Oprah Winfrey interview. The interesting claim surfaced that the Archbishop of Canterbury had married them three days before the official... Yes, with marriage. no witnesses, which would be with illegal no uh, if, if that were true. Yeah, <laughs> so there's an account of the wedding in this book where that has quietly disappeared. Yes. Well, that is that is going to go on. Well, finally, I'm going to ask a question to both of you, which is, Philip, in your review, you say that Harry is either completely disingenuous or an idiot. Yeah. Uh, which is more likely? A, I don't think he's. I don't think he's an idiot. I don't think he's an idiot. I say that. I think what I what I meant by that was that um, you, the 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 claim that you want to reconcile and reform the relationship with your brother and father while reporting every single conversation yeah. that you have with them nobody could make that claim in uh, in any kind of sense that it was at all likely to happen he has to be completely disingenuous because the only alternative to that is that he is an idiot i think you know it's just utterly dishonest to say those things and particularly about people who really cannot answer back in what world is the princess of wales or the queen going to go on to graham norton and start telling their version of the story no no of course not 
And Cara, the, the same question. I think he's incredibly lost. I mean, his visceral hatred for the press is just palpable on every page. And it's kind of influenced every decision he's made since probably the day his mother died. And now he is cannon fodder for the front page news and he's making himself that with every interview he does, with every book he writes. And surely he must know that there's a correlation between the two. I think that he made a decision out of anger and now he is so deep into the decision that he kind of sees no way back. I mean, he must be idiotic to think that there's a way back for him now after he he makes his father look heartless. He accuses his brother of being violent towards him multiple times. And I mean, he makes Camilla look just the most awful person on earth. Like she's described as having a pension for talking to the press, a campaign for marriage and the crown. I mean, there is just no way back for him now. And he must know that. Or if not, he is an idiot. Well, Cara and Philip, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I do hope you'll join me again next week.